Today we begin a new teaching series called Love and Marriage for the next six weeks. As was mentioned, we'll be talking about marriage. And marriage, we will see, is a gift from God. It's designed by God. It's a good thing. And as we begin, uh, how do you view marriage? How have you seen marriage? Maybe you're here and you're saying, I saw a lot of healthy marriages and I see marriage as a good thing. Uh, maybe you're here and it's not so good. Um, you've seen power and control and gender inequality and things like that. And you're like, not so sure it is a good thing. And so for the next six weeks, we'll be looking at this thing this, that God has designed. So if you're married, um, maybe you're here today and you're married and your marriage is stronger than it's ever been. Maybe you're here in your marriage, you're married and it's hanging on by a thread or maybe it's somewhere in between. God wants to speak to you. He wants to speak to your spouse too, but instead of elbowing them all the time in the next six weeks, Lord, what are you saying to me? Uh, if you are not looking to get married and you're single, we'll be talking about singles as well uh, and their part in their role in marriage and in the spiritual family of God. If you are looking to get married, and a shout out to our young adults, many of them are away on a, a, a retreat this weekend. Uh, young adults and all of you looking to get married, uh, get out your pen and take some notes, not just for the next six weeks. Uh, I've been married almost 30 years and I'm still taking notes. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you need a big notepad because you are to take notes as long as you are Married, and, and I want to just set the context here to talking about marriage. Uh, marriage is to be honored. It matters to God. It's his design. It's this first institution that he created. It's to be the foundation of, of society. But marriage is not to be idolized. In other words, mar your marriage is not an end in itself. It's not like, well, this is my family and that's it. Jesus reconfigures how we view marriage in the family. And he says, there's something greater than our biological families. It's our spiritual family. That I am to view my spiritual family that's going to last forever as my defining family. And I am to treat people in my spiritual family like family. So that's why we talk about Woodside. We're brothers and sisters. We're family here. That you ought to be uh, loving people at the Woodside Church family. And that's why church is so important because we're called to, to go through life together. So having said that, here's what I want to make the point is whether you're single or you're married, you're part of God's family. And so we're working together. So this is not just for married people. Uh, and as we begin, I want to say too, uh, my wife and I have been married uh, almost 30 years. It'll be 30 years this summer. And uh, we shared a lot of good times together, but we've had challenges. We've had rough spots. Uh, we have, um, well, we'll get to all of that. Um, <laughs> when we first got married, we were both followers of Jesus, and we said we want to keep Jesus at the center of our marriage, and we keep working at that. Um, and there's one passage in Scripture that we have followed again and again over those 30 years. And it's the passage, really, the, the defining passage of marriage, and it's about, it involves the first marriage. So if you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn to Genesis 2. That's where we're going to begin our series today with the first marriage, and God tells us, here's how my design works. 
And he's going to give us three directives. So if you're married, this is for you. It's not for someone else. It's for every single marriage. And may God work in your marriages in the next six weeks and beyond. So Genesis 2, the key verse where we find the directives is verse 24, but we're going to begin in verse 18 to give us, to set the context. So we read these words. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So God creates mankind is the pinnacle of his creation. So he creates the first man, and everything has been good, good, good. But here we find something's not good. It's not that God has messed up. It's that his creation is not yet complete. There's a man surrounded by animals. And Moses, who we believe wrote Genesis, wants to bring our attention to that. That there's lots going on around Adam, but he is alone. Notice the word alone. God made each of us for himself. That relationship is the primary relationship. So God made Adam for himself. So he, Adam has God. And just uh, a reminder, uh, whether we're single or married, we find our wholeness in our relationship with God. He is to be our ultimate uh, identity, our ultimate meaning, our ultimate satisfaction. When you look to any created person, uh, things are not going to go well. You've got it, whether you're single or married, we all look to God. But he says, man, it's not good for that man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So a couple things. First, please be again reminded that we are made for relationships because we're made by a relational God. So whether you're single or married, you need relationships. One of the most beautiful things I've seen recently in a number of different spots are single people and married people in the family of God doing life together. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So Adam's alone. He's made for relationships. God says, I'm going to make a helper suitable or a suitable helper. Now, when you read the Bible, you can follow the author and, oh, I, I get the meaning there. Sometimes it's pretty plain and clear. Other times, you might need a study Bible. Um, it's a good thing to kind of get, what's the context here? Because when we read this, we see a helper suitable. There we go. God's a chauvinist. You know, he's going to make an assistant for Adam, that she's going to be subservient. Oh, he needs a helper. But when you do a bit of study, you realize the Hebrew word helper suitable is easer. It's used 15 times in scripture and 11 times it's used of God. The psalmist says, the Lord is my easer, my helper, and God is not inferior to us. What he's saying is, Adam's alone, I'm going to make someone fit for him. Okay, animals are great. Man is dog's best friend, right? But dogs are not like human beings. We read, we continue, verse 21. So the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. 
The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. God creates man. God creates woman. Who walks the woman down the aisle to the man? God did. Who planned the first wedding? God did. Who paid for the first wedding? God did. Marriage is a divine creation. If you go to university, you'll hear in a class that marriage is the result of Neanderthal, often, not every university class, but in, in uh, societal classes, marriage is the result of uh, Neanderthals, or it's the result of a patriarchy. It's not a social construct. God brought the two together. Jesus said it when he's talking about this passage, and he's talking about marriage in Matthew 19, says, what God has joined together, let man not separate. What God has brought together, joined together. That's why at a Christian wedding, you often hear, dearly beloved, we are gathered here today in the sight of God, in the presence of these witnesses, to join together this man and this woman in holy matrimony. Marriage is an institution of God and as such should be entered into reverently and advisedly, right? We're recognizing marriage is a gift of God. But also in a marriage, usually it's the father of the bride. Sometimes it's someone else stepping, standing in. But when the father of the bride walks the bride down the aisle to the man, that father represents God and is saying, I believe or we believe or you believe together that this woman is fit for this man, and she is fit for you. So God brings them together in this first wedding. What's Adam's response? This is now. Adam's excited. In this case, it's love at first sight. Anybody believe in love at first sight? Okay, it's a discussion. This really was love at first sight. And these are the first recorded words in Scripture by a human being. This is the first love song. I mean, this was on the Billboard Top 100 for years and years. It was the only love song, all different genres. He identifies with her. His heart is drawn to her. He praises God for her. He says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She is like me. There's a likeness there. But notice there's also a distinctness there. She's not called man. She is called woman. We call it the complementary nature of man, that God designed men and women to fit, to work together. Now, the question is, why didn't God just create males? Or why didn't God just create females? Why did he create two genders? It's because marriage represents God. Let us, God said, let us make man, us is plural, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's how God has revealed himself to us, the triune God, three persons in one being. Let us make man in our image. In his image, God created them, male and female. In other words, males or the man can represent God in ways that a female can't. And females or a woman can represent God in ways that a man can't. Together, the man and the woman on earth represent the image of God. 
So God creates men and women, brings them together. And by the way, if you're here and you say, well, wait a second, what about the other genders? Male, female, third gender, fourth gender option. What about them? If you're here and you're saying, what about uh, same-sex marriage and two men or two women? Uh, we, after this series, before Easter, we'll be in a series called Created Bodies, and uh, we'll be discussing those, uh, uh, those situations in that series. God here brings the man, the woman together, and now here's the plan. Verse 24. That is why, because God created to be together, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Some of us grew up in the King James Version. Leave, cleave, and become one flesh. That's God's will for your marriage. That's God's design for your marriage. And notice that naked, they were both naked and felt no shame. There was this openness, this transparency between Adam and Eve. There was harmony with God, harmony with each other. This was before the fall, before sin entered into uh, mankind's experience. So this is a good gift. But notice there, that is why a man leaves his father and mother Adam and Eve didn't have a father and mother. Who's God speaking to? He's speaking this over mankind. Here's the plan. Here's my design for marriage. Well, let's look at the three directives. First, a man leaves his father and mother. The word in, in the Hebrew, azab, means to relinquish. It means to release, to loosen which means, God says, in this new relationship that the man and the woman are to relinquish their ties to their parents. So it doesn't mean they never visit their parents again or anything like that. It means that this new relationship is to take priority over their existing relationships, including with their parents. And I want to speak to parents and in-laws here. If your child who's gotten married or in-law who's gotten married ask you for parental advice, go for it, right? But there's to be no parental interference. This new couple are responsible, accountable to God. You're not to be interfering in their relationship. So before parents, this relationship takes priority. Before children, this relationship takes priority. If you uh, have young kids, have you noticed that 24-7, they can be demanding? That's the way kids are, right? It's part of growing up. And if you don't set boundaries, what can happen is your home can become a child-centered home, which is not good. You don't want to send kids into the world to have this sense of entitlement. So you need to say, and you love your child dearly, but you need to say, as a, as a husband and wife in your home, and for you single parents, there's a, a variation to this, but as a husband and wife, you need to say to your child that for 15 minutes, mommy and daddy are talking, and so you uh, go do whatever they do. My wife and I used to call it couch time. In different stages of our uh, marriage with the kids at different stages, this was mom and dad's time. Did we do it every single day? No. But a lot of times on the couch, later it was at the dinner table, go and play or go and do something. Mom and dad 
are talking, and we used to have date nights. The reason we did those things is because we needed to keep our relationships central. Our kids need that security that we are prioritizing our relationship, that we love each other. So before parents, this relationship is more important. Before children, before golf and hockey and work, before, you can add this now, social media, that your spouse, God's will for you, is to put your spouse before social media. And here's the challenge for those of us that have been married. Over time, certain things compete for what's most important. And we have to, especially in today's day, we have to fight to keep this relationship a priority. Are you keeping your relationship with your spouse a priority? It can so often slide, and other things can get in the way. Uh, with my wife and I, um, for a number of years, she said to me, I feel like I'm second to the church because of my personality and different things. Um, it was not good. I was, today I'm in a much better place, but for years, she said, I feel like I'm second to the church. I wanted to serve God. I wanted Jesus at the center of my marriage. And so when you hear something like that and someone says, I think, you know, maybe it's social media or whatever it is, your tendency is to turn away. But if you're following Jesus, you have to turn to each other. You have to talk with each other. You have to learn to listen. And so we would talk. How many of you husbands out there like me, hey, we need to talk. How many of you just love that? Sure, right? There was a time, I, in today, I, uh, sure, let's talk. I love talking with my wife. But there was a time where we need to talk. And we'd often uh, kind of rate our relationship where we're at. And, um, and I'd be like, well, it's an eight. You know, I love you. And, and yeah, I'm giving energy to the church, but I got, you know, and I got three kids. I'm giving energy to them. There's not a lot left over, but I love you. And I give it an eight. Do you know what she gave me? Come on, all you ladies, you know. It was lower, right? Because women tend to be more relational, the way they're wired. It was like a four. And I'd be like, what? A four? Right? Around and around we go. So you have to listen and turn to each other. But here's the key, especially you men. Here's the key. You need to listen without being defensive. And again, bring out the duct tape. Because she would talk, and I would often invalidate what she felt, or I invalidated her concern. Oh, you shouldn't feel that way. You shouldn't do this. And I had to learn not to be defensive. John Gottman, who is at the University of Washington, has a lot of study on marriage. He has the four predictors of divorce, four horsemen of the apocalypse, if you will. Criticism, contempt, stonewalling, and defensiveness. And defensiveness is where you turn from your spouse and you won't allow your spouse to complain. Now, complaining really has to be earned in that relationship. If you're a spouse and you're always negative, you really haven't earned the right to, com to complain. But if you're like, I want to make this marriage work, and you're trying to point out the good things and you're appreciative, they're, they're, that you do need to complain. You work together and you hear what the other person is saying. If you are defensive and you just never talk, guess what? 
Those problems, those issues don't go away. They just accumulate, and more and more you turn from each other. Well, over time, I learned to turn to my wife and listen. Now, here's, here's my experience. Why did I do that? Because I am not governed by my feelings. I am not governed by what this world says to do with my life. I am governed by Jesus and his word. And Jesus says, I want to be at the center of your marriage. And in your marriage, I want to work on you. And your wife is a tool to make you more patient and kind and loving. And guess what? You're a tool on your wife, with your wife to work in her life. And I had to surrender again and again. That's something in my marriage. And she's had to surrender. Lord, I don't feel like this, but Lord, I want to honor you in my marriage. If you don't want to honor Jesus in your marriage, follow the, world, follow the ways of the world. You don't feel like it, just don't do it. But man, it's a scary thing, but I want to encourage you, men in particular, that you would do it because the payoff is huge. You not only bring glory to God, in this relationship because you represent God, she does, but it's the best thing for you. If you're not convinced that God's ways are best, you won't obey him. And I know it's shadow of a doubt, God's ways are always the best thing, not just for my wife, but for me too. So number one is the law of priority. You're constantly turning to each other. This relationship is special. So guys and uh, men and women, this quite how are we doing, okay? And guys, if she says three or two, don't get all defensive. You can get there. Ask my wife today. I'm a 10. It's a 10. We've arrived. Okay. <laughs> I, we've got to move on. <laughs> my book's coming out later. Right. Okay. <laughs> Second, a man leaves his father and mother, priority, and is united to his wife. The word in the Hebrew is devok. And it means, uh, the noun form is glue, being glued together, uh, soldering together. It has the idea of permanence, but it's not like, oh, you're married to me, so you just have to live with me every day. You know, you said for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, and sickness and health. This is just the way I am, you know, and you just have to put up with it. Okay. The Hebrew word has the idea of permanence, but it also has the idea of pursuit. Many times the Hebrew language, it's interesting, words in the Hebrew language uh, tell stories. It's, it's an interesting thing how, how that came to be, but often when you see a Hebrew word, it's not translated often simply into one equivalent English word. It's a number of, there's a number of nuances to it. So one is permanence and glue, but another meaning of the word is to catch and hold on cleave, hold fast, be united. So it's this idea of it's permanent, but there's this ongoing pursuit that you are loving your spouse, you're pursuing your spouse, and men in particular, sometimes, you know, got married, well, I've just conquered, so now I can put my feet up on the recliner and just watch sports all day, okay? So it's that idea of pursuit, and, and it takes work. All the young people here, uh, feelings are wonderful, um, but love is a verb more than a feeling. Biblically, there's a place for feelings, but they come and go. Love's a verb. And usually studies have shown this, that it's about 18 months, high end is two years, 
before those feelings can wane. So young people, you might be just so in love with so-and-so. Oh, sorry, I'm acting out here, but so in love with so-and-so, okay? Give it about 18 months, two years max, and you're going to wake up one day and the birds aren't singing. And if you're married, you're like, did I marry the wrong person? Wait a second, is this what I signed up for? Okay, why? Because marriage takes work. You've got to pursue. Again, lots of things. You can turn to lots of things and pursue them. Career, right? Your kids, that you're all about your kids. You've got to work at your relationship with your wife and your husband pursuing one another. Good marriages don't just happen. They take a lot of work. And again, for me and for my wife, Lisa, it's where we've had to surrender. And we're going to talk in the next few weeks about serving each other, uh, forgiving each other, and growing with each other. Um, But it takes a lot of work. In those initial days, we'd sit at a table or or somewhere in, in the house and and uh, we're going to be talking about differences. She's different than me, and I'm different from her in those differences. And in those early days of marriage, a lot of times it was about frustration and negativity and anger and attacks. Now, for me, I'm a pastor. We had a, I, it, was, it like, wasn't like we were throwing things, but it was just like trying to process our differences and being married to one another, and those things were present. Today, because we've grown, we still, you know, think she thinks this, I think this, but we process so much quicker, and it's without that negativity, it's without the attacks, it's without the, it's a beautiful place. So that's why I say again to you men, make sure you're turning to, and if you need a third party, you need someone uh, to, to help, uh, that's what our church family is about. Okay, and that's one of the things about, especially if you're struggling in a marriage, we tend to isolate. There's a church family that you need to reach out to, whether it's someone in your life group, whether it's someone uh, asking for the name of a counselor, because we're called to work through different things. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, do not be deceived or misled. Bad company corrupts good character. You hang around people that aren't Christians, and they're like, I wouldn't put up with that. You know, if she did that to me, I'd be gone. Or, oh, you don't love him anymore. You know, just go, right? That, you listen to that, it's going to take you somewhere. But a church family, we're to encourage each other to do the right thing. And I will just say say this too. Someone has said, and I think they're they're right on, but um, to get divorced because you ran out of love, just don't love him anymore, I don't have those feelings. To get divorced because you ran out of love is like selling your car because you ran out of gas. Okay, love is an action more than it's a feeling. And the more we begin to do it God's way and those actions, the feelings in time come. Sometimes it's a long time, but they come. We're, uh, marriage takes work. When you say, I do, you're not just promising your your present love, but you're promising this future love, which means I can't be lazy. I gotta keep working towards my relationship because I love Jesus. I wanna pause just for a moment before the third directive. What about the person that's being abused in a marriage relationship? Physically, sexually, emotionally, Verbally, 
Does that person in that relationship that loves Jesus say, well, I just have to stick it out? The word abuse has the idea of damage. And if someone is being damaged by their spouse, God calls for us to remove ourselves from that damage, which means the abused person says to the other person, I love you, or I, you know, I'm committed to you, I'm, I'm married to you, but I will not let you abuse me. I need to get to a safe place. And there's a discussion whether one person leaves the home or the other person leaves the home, but I need to be in a safe place. And from that safe place, then the person says to the other, you need to go to counseling. And by the way, the person that, that makes that directive, they need to get counseling as well. But you need to go to get counseling, or I'm asking you to get counseling to deal with the issues, or our issues, that you will learn to deal with them in a healthy way. And if you do, then possibly we can reconcile our relationship. I'm committed to you, and I want you I want it to work, but I can't let you just damage me. There's a place. And God has worked through that. And by the way, I will just say this. In my experience working uh, over the years with men and women, sometimes the guy will go to counseling, but it's simply to get back in the home. And women in particular have this radar. They know whether the, the changes are genuine or not. But the, but, the, but the man or the woman that says, it's about me and Jesus, and surrenders to Jesus and says, Jesus, I'm misrepresenting you. I want to do it your way. The other person, not from the woman, can pick up on that. So this relationship, priority, permanent with that ongoing pursuit, and then finally, it's a partnership. That the man and the woman are to be companions, partners through life, teammates, if you will. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Now, we often think of the physical union, and yes, that's what is being talked about here and in our series, Creative Bodies. We'll talk about sex and sexuality. Um, but there is a place for the physical in a relationship. But it's not just physical. It's emotional. It's spiritual. And we know from studies um, with science that there's a whole lot going on in physical intimacy that God designed it to be a bonding. The challenge or the problem is, is we've got culture and young people that says, you know, just casual sex, no big deal. Hookup culture, no big deal. I mean, University of Chicago published a study years ago, but there's been books coming out I'd like to refer, but that's a whole other conversation that say women in particular are the losers. But now we are seeing from research that men are the losers when it comes to casual sex. If you are engaged or you have a boyfriend, girlfriend, and you're having physical intimacy and you're not married, you need to stop. Now, you can ask God to God forgive us. This is not your way. And if you had sex before marriage, God forgive us. Okay, God's a God of grace. You don't go through life beating yourself. But it's not God's way. It's not God's way. There's a better way. And so with couples, it's okay, you're going to get married. From this day forward, you're not physically intimate. Okay, so it's this physical oneness, but it's a comprehensive oneness. It's, it's meant to bond us emotionally, spiritually. 
Now, what can happen over time um, is that we, um, we're turning from each other, and then, um, then we're fighting about sex because um, uh, a number of factors there, right? And, and it, it just, um, it's not a good place. Priority, pursuit, and then this oneness. I want to say this too, when two people turn from each other and um, there's no sex and there's no emotional connection, no spiritual connection, it often, what it does is it, it, it spirals into uh, power and control issues. And where one person is trying to control the relationship, the other person is trying to control it. This whole power and control thing going on. And in God's design, the man and the woman are equal and they are to make decisions together. There's not to be a power imbalance. God's will for your marriage is that no one controls the relationship. No one controls the money. No one controls the children. No one controls the schedule. That the man and the wife talk thing, things through together and make a decision together. And that takes some work. But it's a good place to be. That's God's design when you're making decisions together. And just one, one final note before we close is I know in my relationship when I first married my wife, Lisa, um, she was really easygoing. I, by nature, like to lead. And so I'd make the decisions. I loved her as Christ loved the church, and I would just decide. In time, she started to have some more input into the decisions more and more. And today, we work together. I mean, we started way back then, but we work together because she's got strengths that I don't have, I have strengths that she doesn't have, and together. So we'll be talking more about what that looks like and, and making decisions as a couple uh, in the days ahead. So today, God's design is that your spouse is your priority. God's design is that your spouse, married to your spouse, is to be permanent, which means an ongoing pursuit. And God's design is that your partners, you're on the same team working together. There is hope for every single marriage here. But I want to challenge you, it starts with you. So would you today, would you this week, say, Lord, what are you saying to me about my marriage? And if you're looking to get married, Lord, what is it I need to work on as I one day hope to be married? Would you bow with me as we pray? Lord, I speak hope over every marriage here today in our church family. Lord, you are the God who heals and restores and builds. With you, there is always hope. And Lord, I ask you that you would soften each of our hearts. Lord, that if we have been doing marriage in our own strength, our own way, Lord, that today we would turn to you and we'd begin that process of turning to our spouse with a desire to do it your way. Oh, Lord God, help us, I pray. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.